like I was telling Erica earlier, so one of the really funny things that um, that happened to me this week is I actually forgot what our podcast was going to be on. So when Erica texts me to remind me that it's going to be on whether or not I'm a zombie, I actually had massive amounts of anxiety about it and completely like talked myself into circles for like hours. So I'm actually super <laughs> excited for what's happening today. <laughs> Well, you may not be as excited after you hear it. You know, you may decide you are a zombie, at least in part. I mean, I feel like if I'm a zombie, though, there's probably a scholarship for that. And I'm personally, like, really tired of paying money for grad school. So if there is, I'm going to find the I'm a zombie scholarship and get paid lots That's of pretty money. pretty good. So, right, like win-win situation, right? Silver lining. Go for it. Absolutely. Silver lining. So just so everyone's clear, my name is Katie, and I am not a scientist. <laughs> my name is Erica, and I am a scientist. And this and is this is Southern Science. Southern Science. We were close. One day we're going to get this, and it's going to be amazing. And like you know, the world's going to open up, and all this beautiful stuff's going to happen. Okay, I am prepared. <laughs> My Google machine is prepared. I am ready to look at all these horrible films you send me to look at. Well, today is going to be a lot less gruesome than uh, previous weeks because I figured for our Halloween episode, uh, we should talk about maybe things that weren't. Uh, as obviously terrifying or gross or creepy looking and go with a little bit more of the uh, psychological horror theme of could you be a zombie? Yeah. You know, I think we talked about this last time and I'm going to say it again. Just because you don't find something creepy doesn't mean the rest of us don't find it creepy. I find a lot of things creepy. I can't watch scary movies. I'm a big weenie, so... Yeah, but you like looking at worms blow up crickets. So, like, I mean, of the two of us, which one's the more messed up? <laughs> Just want to throw that out there. Okay, so, I Erica, yes. I would like you to convince me that I am not a zombie. Why well, I, I am know. a zombie. You know, one I of the two. <laughs> at the end of the episode, the jury will be out, but it'll be some interesting food for thought. Let's do it. So, as we think about, you know, human zombies... As we kind of started this several weeks ago, th thinking about the, uh, you know, the history of human zombies in culture, uh, mainly like a Haitian voodoo culture, and then thinking about how zombie culture or the, um, the stereotype of the zombie has kind of pervaded our culture now, like with media, all the movies and books and all that video games. Left as we Dead, talk about. Night of the Living Dead, Last of Us, all the good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. All the good stuff. So it's pretty clear that zombies are pretty pervasive in our popular culture. And so uh, in thinking about, you know, the potential for human zombies, one of the entities you might turn to might be the CDC, because if there was a big disease outbreak of zombieism, you might want to see what they have to say about it. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. I feel like most people would want that, but I feel like the last like year has proven to us that people apparently don't care what the CDC says. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> One way or the other, people are like either nope or yes. CDC comes last. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's a good point. So uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up at the beginning of our talk today was the fact that uh, the CDC actually wrote an article in 2013 that was called Zombies, a pop culture resource for public health awareness. 
And in it, they detail all of the ways that you can use the idea of zombies in pop culture to show people why things like public health policies, epidemiology, things like that are actually important. And yes, maybe we should have listened to this a year ago rather than now. But I just like, I feel like this year actually has shown us how we're just not going to survive as a species if zombies happen. Yeah. I like the meme that says the, the same person who doesn't wear their mask in public is probably the person who would hide a zombie bite. Oh, I've never seen that. And you've just messed up my world. <laughs> it's mean, probably true though. It's probably true. If you though. think about it. Yeah, no, definitely. Probably true though. You know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting to see the people who will be angry about having to socially distance from a zombie. I'm going to laugh my head off if coronavirus turns out to be some sort of like zombie, like latent thing. Is that what you're about hey. to tell me? Are you about to tell me well, something about, okay, but a virus no, giving me coronavirus. I was just going to say though, that if you become a zombie, you may actually literally laugh your head off, you know, decay and all. <laughs> Sorry. Da, da, da. Wait, wait, can't you do that sound? Oh, wait, 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 I have a sound wait. now. Yes. <laughs> okay, I might actually like this recording one better because you can do like really weird sounds and I'm so uh, I'm so here for it. Okay, yeah. very cool. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the point of that article from the CDC was to, quote, explore the utility of zombies to capitalize on the benefits of spreading public health awareness through the use of relatable popular culture tools and scientific explanations for fictional phenomena. Okay. So I'm like, that's pretty helpful when you think about trying to get people to realize the effects of an outbreak. If maybe people had been thinking about this anytime recently since 2013, that'd been great. And actually, I definitely have an article saved somewhere that is literally a decade old. It's about, a you know, potential for what viruses could actually induce zombieism and what were the modifications and symptoms that would probably be required. So, but dang it, you know, I, I, I can't find it. And uh, it seems like a thing that'd be important to be able to find. I should be able to, I don't know. Anyway. Maybe there's a reason you can't find it. I know. Maybe it's been uh, blocked. Maybe it has. It's too true. The Illuminati's keeping it from us. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it is Halloween. The Illuminati's definitely keeping it from you. <laughs> so up. in thinking about, like, people think about zombies in humans, one of the most common go-tos for what kind of virus could induce zombieism is a rabies virus. Yes. 28 days <laughs> later, anyone? Yes. Right. So there are pop culture things like uh, 20 Days Later. There are definitely mm, hypothesis piece papers like the one that I definitely can't find and wish I could that say that, you know, a rabies virus might be one of the best candidates for inducing zombie-like behavior. Why is that? I mean, like, well, I, I get it. Like, like being ragey, like, but like the other thing, like, the, I mean, rabies is basically like fear of water and then you die like 24 hours later. Like, you don't want to bite people, Right. Well, it depends. I mean, I don't know that in humans it's been shown to proceed to, you know, physically biting people. Um, but that's definitely like animals who get infected like to, you know, have that aggression response of biting people. Mm -hmm. um, so just a few like facts about rabies. So according to the CDC, when a human is first exposed to rabies virus, first the virus has to travel through the body from the site of infection, which is usually a bite through the body to the brain. 
Which and, is why you have time for the vaccine, right? Right. So yeah. there's an incubation period and that can actually last from weeks to months, depending on the location of the injury, like physically how far it has to go through your body and what kind of tissues. And then the type of the virus, what variant of rabies and any existing immunity you might have. But once you start showing symptoms, the first symptoms are pretty general. They're like headache, weakness, discomfort, I have crickling headache, weakness or- and discomfort. Right. I'm like, that's just right now being an adult. (laughs) We all have rabies. It's like the Hulk. I'm always angry. Pretty much. Uh, And then the obvious like, you know, prickling or itching at the side of the bite, which is like most wounds do that. So the problem is that after a few days, it'll progress to the acute symptoms, which is what you were mentioning before. So like cerebral dysfunction, so you can't think. It's a lot of anxiety, confusion, agitation. And then after the confusion agitation stage uh, will progress to delirium, abnormal behavior, hallucinations, the hydrophobia you mentioned, so fear of water, and insomnia. And I think most of the thought behind the fear of water is that it's more that it's physically painful to swallow. And so you get upset at wanting to drink and you can't and you in this kind of detached state that you're in, you associate the painfulness of trying to drink water with becoming a dislike or a fear of water is my huh. understanding. Well, that's fascinating. Look, yeah. you learn something every podcast, <laughs> every podcast you learn something. Okay. So you've, so, and, and once you, of course you get to those symptoms, like I think like one person ever in the history of the world has recovered, right? So it's less than 20. Yeah. have been documented ever. Yeah. yeah, which is like those are not good odds. Yeah. The, that acute stage is usually like 2 to 10 days and after that it's almost 100% fatal. The one case I remember hearing about where someone was able to be cured was basically it was a girl and she'd been bitten by a bat and they basically put her body into a coma, like a hypothermic coma for a long time to try and let her body fight the virus. Basically it was just putting her in almost stasis long enough for her body to begin to fight the virus. It wasn't like, you know, trying to wait for a cure or anything. It was because there isn't a cure once the more acute symptoms have manifested. It's not great. That's like a sci-fi film. If I ever get like infected with rabies, I want you to um, put me in stasis and then I don't know, man, maybe I'll be okay. I'm not going to wait for it to actually be the future, but I will definitely decorate the your hospital room to pretend that it's the future for See, just a little bit. You're the friend everyone needs. <laughs> Every everyone needs a scientist friend who will commit to like making you feel like you're in a sci-fi world. I appreciate yep. it. I'm going to try to make you think you're in the year 3000 just super briefly. It'll fall <laughs> apart it. once I mean, you try no, to leave. But you know what? But... It's okay. The the childlike, you know, adoration will still be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing that I know, obviously, um, is rabies, because that is what is in all the movies, all the really scary right. movies, at least, right? It's some branch off the rabies virus. Right, and like you said, it's usually the confusion and aggression that yeah. is played upon in those movies. And for some reason, you want to eat people, but that, you know, you got to tie the zombieism into it. Right. And honestly, my vote for a zombie plague has always been based on prion diseases. Oh, those and, are scary, though. I don't like those. Like Kretzville Jacob? Yep. Yeah, no, I don't like those. There is a so, zero chance of getting better. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. So if anyone doesn't know what prions are, prions are actually kind of the only way for a disease to be transmitted between people without an actual infectious agent. So not a bacteria, not a virus, not even other mammalian cells. Um, It is actually misfolded proteins. And these are misfolded proteins in your brain and the short version of the story is that once they come into contact with the properly folded version of the same protein, they will induce misfolding. And basically you end up with a lot of holes in your brain. Like One they will... of us. One <laughs> of us. These are called spongiform encephalopathies because they actually make your brain look kind of spongy because it gets a lot of holes in it because all the proteins folded and collapsed in the wrong spaces and it's not great. And for all you non-scientists out there, when holes start to pop up in your brain, it's not good. Usually a bad sign. Yeah, it's it's like I can't think of a situation that's made better by holes in your brain. I mean, I guess there's like super rare cases where trepanation could help, but that's holes in your skull, not in your brain. Of know. course, you'd have a comeback for that, scientist. Well, that's holes in your skull, not in your brain. <laughs> So prion diseases, I can see why that would be like a good brain thing. But has there been any proof that that's linked to any sort of like aggression or anything that would be like used in movies to make zombies? I think the connection between zombies and prion diseases is the fact that you can get prion diseases by eating brains. I did know that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not that having the prion disease makes you want to eat brains. It's actually kind of a reverse causation. Um, But you can't get a prion disease by eating brains either uh this happens to in cows we call it mad cow disease and if you have if this happens in sheep we call it scrapey if it happens in um practices of ritualistic cannibalism in papua new guinea we call it kuru there we go um, <laughs> the version Gotta drop that in there people are totally still eating people and the version that uh, katie mentioned is more of a genetic condition not a uh, eating brains driven condition, the Creutzfeldt Jakob disease or Creutzfeldt Jacob disease. I've always said Creutzfeldt Jakob because that's the way they say it whenever you go to give blood. Okay, and you have to and answer it's that probably because it's right. But let's not forget, I'm deep south and I never had the like PhD training that you did, so my accent's much worse than yours. Well, I don't know it from my PhD ness. I know it because I give blood a lot, <laughs> and they always ask you. If you like, have ever had not... Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or babesiosis or a duramatter graft or all the kinds of stuff. I don't know what any of that is. They've never been mad at me for giving blood. <laughs> My mom and I once went through and tried to re- see how many of the blood donation questions we could remember. Just list because we both get blood <laughs> so often. We are like, can we list all like 45 questions? Oh my God, you're killing me. I love that. We- Anyway, sorry, I'm getting distracted. Oh, you know, I also <laughs> want to point out this is later than we normally record. And like, I'm a teacher and you work a day job. So like, this is late for us. We're delirious yes, all right. world. It's almost nine o'clock at night and it's, our brains are dead. Yeah, sorry. we're old. So keep going. So <laughs> other ways we could be zombies. Right. So those are the stereotypical ones. But can, keeping with the parasitoid theme of all of our previous zombie talks, there is one parasite that is found very prevalently in humans that is thought to be linked to many behavioral changes. And like we said with the other examples, behavioral changes that are designed to ensure its own propagation. And that is Toxoplasma gondii. So toxoplasmosis is the name of the disease. Toxoplasma gondii is the name of the 
protozoan Googling. So yeah, you can Google toxoplasmosis. There aren't uh, really any fun pictures that I know of. Uh, you'll find a lot of pictures probably of the life cycle of this going from cats to humans. That's actually exactly what I, that's exactly what I'm seeing right now. Okay. So <laughs> man, you, you had that, didn't you? Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so toxoplasma gondii or just T gondii is a single cell protozoan. And it is an obligate parasite, which means it requires to be in a host in order to reproduce. And it is one of the rare behavior-altering parasites that affects mammals. And actually, it can affect the vast majority of mammals. And as a side note, I learned also that the CDC apparently says that about 60% of infectious human diseases are zoonotic, which means that they can be passed to animals, which I did not expect that number to be that high. I didn't expect that either. Now I'm super nervous because I would never want to hurt my dogs. Yeah. It's weird. Anyway. So T. gondii or the condition of toxoplasmosis is actually incredibly widely studied. There's over 15,000 papers, 500 reviews, many books and book chapters that are published about it. So it's very widely studied. There are so many articles online. Oh my God. There's so much to look at. You can find a ton of stuff. Okay. Keep going. So what the parasite is probably trying to do is exemplified by its relationship using rats and then cats as a as the intermediate and then terminal host. Okay. So its relationship with using rats as an intermediate host is pretty similar to what we've talked about with other intermediate hosts in that it alters the rat's behavior in a way that is harmful to the rat but beneficial to the parasite. So Fair enough. Specifically, as it was determined by this uh, 2001 PLOS-1 paper by House Vias and Sapolsky, odors like cat urine that would usually generate avoidance behavior in a rat instead activate sexual arousal pathways in the rat's brain. I am not seeing that, but okay, I'm going to take your word for it. (laughs) Uh, You may have to look for the paper. I don't know if you can like... I'm not going to look up sexual arousal in rats. I'm just going to let you explain it to me. (laughs) So they did a good job in the paper of kind of ruling out is this alteration of kind of the fear slash defensive system or, you know, what, what, what exactly is being altered in the rats? So specifically, the parasite is affecting their limbic system, which is responsible for both predator defense behaviors as well as sexual slash reproductive behaviors. And they the researchers determined that it's not affecting any other like fear or anxiety tests and like that they did with the rats. And it's also not affecting like smell or social of things that could it be in effect. Well, maybe they're just not smelling the cat urine or it smells different to them, that kind of thing. Um, which, you know, we both have cats. You can smell cat urine. I mean, um, I was, <laughs> was going to say something. I was like, as a person who sleeps with a cat box in her room, it yep. is an acquired taste. hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> I'm with you there. So they basically noticed similarities between like the rats that were exposed to the cat urine and rats that were exposed to uh, like male rats that were exposed to female rats that were in heat. It's a long story. The point is that they found out that the limbic system was being affected. And as a result, the rats seek out the cats specifically as finding the cat's urine and they get eaten. And this is beneficial to the parasite because the cats are the terminal hosts for this parasite, meaning that the parasite can reproduce in the cat's intestines. And even the cat? Yes, that's the thing. I saw apparently, despite the fact that this parasite can uh, infect almost every mammal there is, it needs to reproduce 
in the intestines of cats. And then its eggs are shed in basically the cat's poop. And then it has to figure out how to get into another cat. So thus the cycle begins again. Oh, is this why pregnant women aren't supposed to clean cat cat boxes? Yes, you are correct. And I will definitely talk about why. Um, oh, snap. But that okay, is exactly cool. why. Look at me tying together science stuff. All right. And so the problem is that the parasite will make basically cysts in the brain and the limbic system that's causing this change of behavior in the rats. But the question is, what about humans? Because that's what we're talking about in this spooky episode. So theoretically, the general stat is about 30% of humans are already infected with toxoplasmosis. <laughs> this is this stat varies depending on where you live. So in the US, it's about 20%, not a lot better. Um. <laughs> No. Parts of Central and South America have up to 50 to 80% infection with uh, T. gondii. And there was a 2011 study that suggests that it's probably actually about 6 billion people worldwide, which would be 80% of like literally all people. And so <laughs> I don't know what they were extrapolating from in that study. I didn't really delve deeper. Um, but there is a stat that in, like the U.S. it's probably about 20%. So is there like a test, like a pregnancy test I can take just to know? Actually, there is. There is a screening that you can do. And I don't know what it says about our healthcare system, but this screening is a routine part of prenatal care in much of Europe and is not a covered procedure in American hospitals. Girl, don't get me started. You want to turn this into a political podcast? We could turn this into a political podcast. (laughs) No, no politics, only science, (laughs) only science. So yeah. Fine. Okay. No, I'm going to grump about some like effects on like congenital toxoplasmosis, which is for babies who are born with this. We'll give some stats on that in a second. Okay. But in thinking about if this incredible behavior change is happening in rats, and so many humans have it. The question is, are humans being similarly affected? Cats the not thought eat is, us, though. No, but the parasite, its only job is to make the rats seek out the cats. It doesn't make the cats eat the rat. Cat's doing that all by itself. And you know for a fact that your cat would eat you if it was any larger, if it could. That's definitely true. This is true. If I forgot to feed her, she would or actually just, she just doesn't like me, period. So yeah, she would eat me. So there's lots of conditions that people have linked correlationally in humans to toxoplasmosis. I liked the title of this one uh, 2016 uh, article, not a paper, just an article. It said, is cat litter parasite making you a rageaholic? So I like it. that was just a, um, an article that referenced a study that said that adults with a psychiatric disorder called intermittent explosive disorder, or IED, are twice as likely to have been infected by the parasite as healthy individuals with no psychiatric diagnosis. And okay. what, this te- what this technically means was that 22% of the people with IED were positive for toxoplasmosis, but only 9% of the healthy group were. But that's just a correlation. It could easily mean that people with IED are more susceptible to getting toxoplasmosis because they have affected immune systems. Like yeah. correlations, you know, they can go both ways. Correlation and the doesn't research- necessarily mean causation. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. to their credit, the researchers said that they don't know if this is due to, you know, different immune systems. It could be a direct effect on the brain, inflammatory response, you know, like the parasite could invoke inflammatory response that then leads to the IED, you know, kind of thing. 
Or it could be a reverse correlation that aggressive people just tend to have cats and eat more undercooked meat. I, I didn't say yet, actually, but another super common way that people get toxoplasmosis is actually, is actually from eating undercooked meat, particularly pork, also lamb and venison, Ooh. or even from like digging in a garden where cats have pooped and the oocysts or the eggs of the parasites are in the soil. It could also happen like if you get some vegetables that grew in contaminated soil and you didn't wash them well enough before you ate them. So there's lots of ways that you can get infected with toxoplasmosis. Fair enough. I gotta be honest. I um eat a lot of stuff raw, but I'm pretty good on my pork and my venison. As long as you cook it, you're good. Yeah, I'm pretty good on cooking those. Okay. So infection with toxoplasmosis or infection with T. gondii, I have to remember to keep those separate, correlates with apparently violence-associated injuries and mortality in some countries. That's a quote from Yaroslav Fleger, who is a biology professor at Charles University in Prague. Toxoplasmosis also correlates with bipolar disorder, OCD, epilepsy. Um, that was a quote from the same guy. And there's actually a ton of papers or there's lots of discussion about toxoplasmosis's connection to schizophrenia. So people with both primary and congenital infections, um, there's actually a good bit of studies, like as far as primary infections, there's a 2014 one uh, from Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. There's a 2006 one, I think that from Biological Psychiatry that talks about the congenital toxoplasmosis and risk of schizophrenia. But apparently this is pretty controversial. Um, Yeah, I was about to say, in my programs, I've never heard anything about that. That doesn't necessarily mean anything because research isn't my focus, but I haven't heard anything about it. I mean, I don't know that anyone would say that all schizophrenia cases are due to underlying toxoplasmosis infections, but it could predispose you. And there's an interesting paper that actually indicates why that might be. Uh, So other conditions that are associated with tox that are correlated with toxoplasmosis. So like there's an increased risk of comorbidity, basically, uh, is uh, bipolar disorder, impulsivity, which is not really a disorder, but it's um, indicative of a behavioral change if this Mm -hmm. isn't isn't a behavior you displayed before, and suicidal behavior. Now, I don't know if the suicidal behavior is linked to other comorbidities, such as the impulsivity or bipolar. Usually there obviously have to be underlying conditions. But something that a lot of these conditions have in common is that they are all associated with dopamine dysregulation. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that we've talked about before that is basically your motivation for doing anything. So dopamine makes you want to eat, makes you want to have sex, makes you interested in literally anything in your life. Yeah. It's not what makes you happy. That's like serotonin and stuff. Yeah. But it makes you motivated. Motivated. Exactly. Yeah. And there was actually a 2011 plus one paper by Prandowski et al. that showed that if you infected mammalian dopaminergic neurons, and technically those were rat adrenal medulla neurons, but they didn't report it that way. They just said mammalian dopaminergic mammalian. neurons. Um, <laughs> you got to read their methods to specify. I'll anyway, they found that if you infect these dopaminergic neurons with this parasite, that it increases their ability to release dopamine by a sevenfold. And that their ability to affect this increase correlates directly with the number of cells that are successfully infected by the parasite. And they found that staining the infected areas of mouse brains will have a lot of increased 
dopamine in those regions. So they propose that that might be the basis for some effects in humans. And actually, many of the behavioral conditions that are associated or at least correlated with toxoplasmosis do have some connection to dopamine dysregulation. So that's a potential method by which the parasite could be affecting humans. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, not great. No, not good. I said cool. (laughs) I was just like, well, that's cool. (laughs) So the least cool part is congenital toxoplasmosis. Oh. It's worth mentioning because it is very harmful to infants who are born with toxoplasmosis. They have eye disease, uh, calcium deposits in the brain, hydrocephalus, which is a fluid accumulation on the brain. And this can be lessened if the mother receives treatment during pregnancy, but there can be very severe effects for children who are born under these conditions. So apparently some European countries have screening for toxoplasmosis as a default. America doesn't, but The important thing to remember is that the risk of toxoplasmosis passing on to a child is greatest if a mother is infected for the first time while she is pregnant. Uh, later, sorry, I had, I was trying to find my note where I said if it was in the later stages or earlier stages. So the mother has to be infected for the first time during the later stages of pregnancy. I mean, and that would, that's actually interesting. You know, you would figure being like the earliest, like everything else with pregnancy. But I was thinking like if the parasite is actually trying to move into the fetus, maybe it only works that when it has a, like developed nervous system. I don't uh, know. That's just me making no, stuff no, up. That would make sense. I know that would make sense though. Like, yeah, even I can follow that. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a sad part. Thanks for that, Erica. <laughs> well, but the good thing is, and so, and so a lot of like pregnant women panic because they're worried about their children and they get rid of their cats as soon as they know that they're be- pregnant. But I say, have all of the cats before you get pregnant, make sure you get the toxoplasmosis first. And then if you're already a carrier, it doesn't matter if you, you can't get reinfected, you're already infected. So it's not going to affect the baby if you already have the toxoplasmosis before you get pregnant. That's the spirit. Anyway, I know that the CDC says that most people recover without treatment, which is strange. I assume they mean like recover from any potential symptoms, because as far as I know, once it's in you, it's kind of in you forever. So I don't know. Uh, There are a few drugs that you can take, but as far as I know, they just make the parasite be in a less active phase. So maybe not actively replicating in your body instead of actively eliminating them. So how can we tell if we're one of the 20% or whatever? How do I know if I'm a zombie? I need to know. Well, you have a cat, so you just got to be really mindful, I guess, of your uh, psychiatric state at this point. I'm a zombie. Statistically, you may or may not. You have a 20% chance as an American. I don't know as a cat owner what your statistics become as an American cat owner. But statistically, there's definitely behavioral changes that are associated with an infection by Toxoplasmosa gondii. I mean, I feel like since I've had Brie, I've become more patient. There you go. That's what a cat will teach you. Yeah, no, maybe that's my Toxoplasmosis. I'm yeah, it makes you more tolerant to of her and try to be, oh, I say that all the time. I'm yeah. going to go tell that to people and be like, I have to, I am a zombie and therefore like I'm not held accountable for my actions. Be like, no, that's the Toxoplasmosis talking. You think that'll work if I get pulled over for speeding? If I'm like, sorry, sir, I have Toxoplasmosis. I mean, depends on how well they know what that actually is. 
And if they do know what it is, if you can try to explain its association with increased dopamine and why that might be affecting your chain, your behavior. I might just pull up this like this episode of the podcast and be like, here, do you have 30 minutes? <laughs> Listen, it's a thing. <laughs> I promise it's a thing. This is a scientist. She's telling the truth. <laughs> So the very last thing I wanted to talk about as far as our Halloween fun, again, this is more of a conceptual episode and not pictures of gross, explodey worms episode. I appreciate that, by the way. (laughs) So just for some more light Halloween fun, to wrap up, I wanted to discuss a 2014 paper from Biology Direct that is by Panchin, Tusikov, and Panchin, two Panchins. That is called midichlorians, the biomeme hypothesis. Is there a microbial component to religious rituals? Hey, Star Wars, bringing it in. I like it. And you know, this is a serious paper because they have both a dash and a colon and a question mark in their title. Oh, dang. It's a very serious paper. They're very serious about this. The more punctuation heavy it is, the more serious it is. Oh, yeah. And the longer the run on sentence, <laughs> the more science that was done. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's That part's true. So I wanted to bring up this paper because it is a, it is a hypothesis piece. And I want to make that incredibly clear that they are proposing some ideas. And if you want to say they're just talking out of their butt, that's fine. I think so. The thing about this paper, Biology Direct, is they include the reviewers' comments. So whenever this paper goes under peer review and their peers, other scientists, say like, I don't know if this one's really going to fly. This journal actually publishes those too. So you can see the other (laughs) researchers going, I don't know, man. Uh, Not what I would pick, but okay. Yeah, basically. But, you know, they got it published. So as a hypothesis piece, it's actually really fun. And I want to also say up front that my presentation of this paper is in no way meant to lessen people's like experience of religion or faith or anything like that. But even though this paper is proposing that there may be a microbial component to people following religious rituals, I'm in no way trying to lessen anyone's religious beliefs at all. Disclaimer done. Good job. (laughs) So this paper is super fun because they start off by talking about all of the different behavior altering parasites that affect animals all over the planet. They talk about the ophiocordyceps. They talk about the toxoplasmosis. They talk about flatworms that we talked about. And this is your quiz, guys. Y'all should have been paying attention the whole time. (laughs) Everyone's getting tested. (laughs) They talk about all kinds of parasites and say like, Hmm, maybe the the phenomena of parasitic host control might be more common than we think. And maybe we're just overlooking it in humans. Bum, bum, bum. So their hypothesis is that microorganisms would gain an evolutionary advantage by encouraging human hosts to perform what they call rituals that favor microbial transmission. And they say that there are examples of religious rituals that, in these authors' opinion, can be regarded as transmitting both ideas, which they use the word meme for that, and physical parasitic organisms. Example, please. They give many, many examples. They claim that uh, most major religions have rituals that are likely to promote the transmission of infections. Their examples include circumcision, the Christian use of a common communion chalice, 
So sharing a common drinking vessel. The Hindu side roll, which is apparently a festival practice of uh, lying on the ground and rolling sideways around a temple for about uh, 600 meters. And generally you have exposed skin. And as a result, many of the men who participate in this often have uh, symptoms of an infection with a parasitic worm after the fact. Okay. Even though that's less common now because uh, sanitary practices following the, the, this religious ritual have apparently increased. Okay. Uh, also ritual washing in say holy rivers, the kissing of many things. So yes. kissing of sacred relics, kissing the wailing wall, kissing the uh, black stone uh, that's the, the large Muslim relic. Um, so there's tons of stuff that, you know, physically you're putting your mouth on things that other people are putting their mouths on. Well, I mean, I've been to multiple Christian churches too. And God, we like to touch each other. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing like, you know, kiss each other's cheek. Then there's like mm-hmm. that minute they give you in like whatever service you're in where it's like turn and greet your neighbor and you have to like oh, handshake people you don't know. As an introvert, that is a horrifying three and a half minutes, you know, <laughs> the worst. <laughs> Be like, no, don't greet your neighbor. It's like, that's when um, you choose to go to the bathroom right there. Yep. Yep. Even like the, um. This is when it's very important place. for me to read my program. Sorry, yes. go ahead. And I'll say, even like the, like the, what are those, like the offering plates? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's Everyone passing around so, physical yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. And they, they didn't mention that, but they did mention like relics from saints that travel all over the world. And oh, handling yeah. those is a spiritual experience. They also mentioned uh, self-inflicted wounds that highly devout people of many religions will inflict upon themselves. Okay, see, we're about to go down this rabbit hole and you and I are never pulling ourselves out. This is fascinating. This is cool. (laughs) That's what I said. We had, I have to talk about this paper. And then they mentioned also, they said, unlikely but possible, the fact that some religious groups reject condom use, uh, vaccinations, and antibiotics. So some people, some religions have restrictions on medical procedures that they're willing to let their um, congregation endure, I guess. That's true. And yeah. so the thinking is that maybe that would, uh, if you were averse to that because a parasite was saying, don't get a medical treatment that impedes my infectious ability, hmm. you know. Okay. Just a thought. Just a thought. Okay. Yes. And so this is kind of the point where they start equating religious practice with a physical organism. And so they call, they, they want to define this as a bio meme, meaning that there is a simultaneous transmission of ideology and something physical and biological, which right. to them is midichlorians, which are physical organisms that let you access the force in Jedi philosophy and therefore have an accompanying religious undertone. True story. Okay. So they've proposed a lot of ways in which, yes, theoretically, there could be a lot of ways that people engaging in religious rituals would come in contact with common microbial organisms. I mean, it's plausible, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's unlikely due to the vast diversity of religious beliefs that all religious belief is inherently driven by a parasite, but they propose for a few reasons I'll say in a second that I guess the willingness to engage in religious ritual and the nature of those rituals as being conducive to parasite transmission may indicate a biological component. So they say, well, if we're going to test for this, 
which they don't because this is a hypothesis piece, but they're like, but if we were. But if I was going to do the thing, I'm not doing the thing, but if I was going to do the thing. I know. I need to get paid to write hypothesis pieces and just kind of I'm telling you, this is like missed opportunity, man. All right. I mean, they cite a lot of stuff. And honestly, this whole paper is really anchored on a 2012 paper called Parasite Stress Promotes In-Group Assortive Sociality, colon, The Cases of Strong Family Ties and Heightened Religiosity. So there's a paper that shows that people with a more religious nature tend to have a higher parasite stress burden. And that's... Okay, that's a... I didn't read that paper, so I don't know how well they corrected for the fact that people who live in industrialized societies versus less developed societies and their exposure to parasites from nature versus their education versus their family practices versus, you know, lots of stuff that would influence both religiosity and exposure to parasites. You know, there's so many things. But they said, if we were to test this, we would want to look into places in the body in your brain and in your gut. Because one thing we didn't talk about is uh, how much your gut microbiome, the bacteria that you have in your intestines, how much that really affects your behavior, your mood, just really so much about your daily life. Mm-hmm. It's often referred to as a second brain. Okay. So they said they would need to just try to do microbiome sequencing of your gut and your brain. It's not super easy, but fine. They would say maybe people who are highly religious have lower immune systems. That could indicate that they're more likely to be infected by parasites. They also say that, you know, religious behavior may be negatively associated with certain medical treatments. But I feel like that's really more, that would be a conscious decision more than just like, we're going to test for the presence of literal microbes. So I don't know about that one. They would look for changes in religious activity following dietary changes that are known to affect the gut microbiome. And then the very obvious check for microorganisms on the surfaces of important religious artifacts. Hey, that one's easier to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, why did you leave that one to the last? That one's like, that's like the one. That's the one you should be doing. Yeah. And they actually, I wouldn't say conclude, but they propose that actually Toxoplasma gondii is their top vote for a parasite that would induce religious behavior because it's very widespread. It's as infection is associated with changes in behavioral traits. And also cats are sacred in Egyptian culture. So I'm like, oh, that's true. They were gods. <laughs> yeah, but like that's one culture a while ago. Hey, look, I'm not sure. Think- Look, cats would love to be the center of all of our religion. Let's be honest. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That's like the cat goal. They like meet together like once a year and they're like, okay, guys, how can we get worshipped again? How can this happen? <laughs> I mean, I'm already scooping their poop out of a box in my, lo- in my bedroom. They want so. more than that. They want more <laughs> than that. They're cats. And then they also talk about the association of T. gondii infection with schizophrenia, depression, and the fact that schizophrenia often manifests with religious delusions very commonly that is true as is as is any kind of mania now that you mention it most Mm -hmm. mania has religious delusions as well so toxoplasmosis is also associated with bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. which mania is a component oh trust me i'm putting this together in my head now i'm about to go down the research (laughs) rabbit hole we're done and it's way too late at night for that i'm about to pass out 
I'm just saying, <laughs> they I'm going to go down the rabbit that, hole. <laughs> they also say that there are some studies that show that religion is particularly important for schizophrenia outpatients and that they tend to have higher religious involvement. But again, that correlation could be causation either direction. Like you need, a higher, you need a better support structure so you're more involved with your church. You know, Makes there sense. could be lots of... They have some pretty loose associations with the schizophrenia tie-in, but... Yeah, but you know, you start putting it all together and you're like, hmm. Right. Their last point was that the history of science provides a number of examples where conditions that were not expected to have microbial origins turned out to have microbial origins. And their example was basically ulcers. That ulcers is not due to stress and spicy foods. It's actually due That's to Helicobacter pylori. Yep. You know? Yep. I didn't know that. Their only example, but okay. <laughs> hey, look, I've had stomach ulcers. That's true. I was like, I'm not even stressed. What's right. wrong with me? <laughs> not your fault. Yep. But at the same time, I will point out that there are a lot of religious rituals that encourage practitioners to cleanse themselves or... Make sure they cook their food fully and not eat anything that has blood still in it. And one of the reviewers pointed that out too. He's like, eh, "Are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah." Are you sure though? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, and I think their response was like, "Yeah." Sometimes the religious ritual is to cleanse yourself, but it's in a holy river that actually has a lot of human sewage dumped into it. Fair. And they concluded with the fact that like parasite stress is associated with homicide rates and child mis- mistreatment and predicts authoritarianism and cross-national and cross-cultural samples. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of thought that humans may be more unconsciously controlled by parasites than we would like to believe. Yeah, I don't want to believe this at all. (laughs) I don't like any of this. (laughs) So like I said, that was just a hypothesis piece. They had no conclusions from it whatsoever. But the, the paper's basically a what if, unless... <laughs> I'm waiting for Stephen King to pick it up and make a movie out of it. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah, I'm sure he has a similar variant. Well, I mean, the stand is a flu, is a flu virus. It's basically COVID, oh. except kills a lot faster. I was like, oh my God, we're basically like living out 2020. Yeah, I literally started trying to read the stand because I've had it for a while. Yeah. It was like right after quarantine started. And then I was like, Maybe this isn't the best time. Maybe why not I'll- just watch the news? It's like, why not just watch the news? Like, shoot. I'll come back to this. <laughs> come back to it when we're not in a pandemic. <laughs> so, yeah, dude, this is actually a really cool way to end our Halloween unit. Like, now I'm going to, yeah. like, obsess over this. <laughs> I mean, I know it wasn't as, uh, you know, as cool science, but just some... That was uh, appreciated. What you call cool science, I call, like, horrific, like, exploding insect gore. Yeah. Well, you know, it happens. Yeah. But this is a cool way to end it. Do you think you're a zombie? I mean, that's just the toxoplasmosis talking. So I mean, I'm just like, you know, personally, as someone with a cat, now I'm convinced I'm going to go tell my husband, I'll be like, our cat made of zombies, and he's going to look at me like I'm insane. Well, then you just play the episode for him. Yep. Then I'll just be like, listen to this podcast. We're definitely zombies and not in control of our actions. (laughs) So what's your mental health minute this week? My mental health minute is, if at all possible, try to take a break. I mean, life is bonkers. And if you can just take a break, whether that's five minutes or the rare coveted day off of work, then just give it a shot. 
I mentioned that as my mental health minute because when this comes out, I will be on a vacation in Texas and I'm that's basically all it's been keeping me going for a few weeks. <laughs> Girl. It's like I just got to make it, you know. I just got to make it to my vacation. I'm going to sit here and say that you're speaking to my soul. I've been up since 4.30 this morning. It is currently 9.30 at night. I am tired. And I think there is something to what you said about how it doesn't have to be an entire day. Like taking that five minutes. Like even being able to talk to you before we started this podcast and basically snuggle under all these blankets that I am. And like I'm on like four pillows right now. Like this is (laughs) the most relaxed I've been all day. It's been pretty nice. I know. Katie looks hella comfy. uh... I am so comfy. Like this is one of those times I wish you guys could like see me. Because, like, I literally am on four pillows with, like, two blankets. And at one point when Erica was talking to me, I had the blankets pulled up under my chin. And I was like, I am literally the most comfortable. She's very cozy. Yeah. So, like, definitely I'm going to reiterate what Erica said because that was actually going to be my mental health minute because we're twinning tonight. I love it. <laughs> I didn't it. mean to steal it. No, I love the fact that we're both kind of on the same wavelength with this. I mean, so you know take what? A COVID's break. hard. God. We're all taking, like, group trauma right now. We're having, like, group trauma. So just, like, take some time for yourself. Take the nap. Take the extra 10 minutes for a lunch break. Yeah, girl, naps. Take care of you. Yep. Oh, my God, I do, too. There's nothing better than a nap. Now I can voluntarily choose to take naps rather than taking them involuntarily, like, before I got my medication switched taking involuntary naps and just blaming the toxoplasmosis being like the parasites are making me do it yep (laughs) yep well happy spooky season everyone yeah happy halloween and we will see you guys hopefully next week definitely two weeks because i will be recording with erica in her house yeah we're gonna record in person yes it's gonna be amazing It's going to be amazing. Super excited. All right. We'll see y'all next week. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. Do you ever tell the friends we knew that you